0: So I want you to open your Bibles to Philippians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7, the one passages that um, Jesse read for us today. We're, we're working through a passage where Paul is teaching us how to have steadiness in, in our life. And if there's one message our world needs, I think it's, it's that one. I mean, we live in a society where people are as unstable as water. People are overwhelmed with work and their marriages, their finances, their children. They're they're full of fears and phobias that paralyze them. They're empty and and joyless from seeking fulfillment in all the wrong places. Uh, Sadly, many of them turn to to drugs and alcohol to seek a phony peace, and that just leads to even more instability in in their life. A study from 1994, so this is a long time ago. I'm sure these numbers have gone up. A study from 1994 from the American Psychological Association showed that 48% of Americans have someone in their household uh, visit a mental health professional every year because they felt something was out of control in their life. John MacArthur said, we literally are living in a sea of people who are emotionally unstable. And yet, sadly, while all of those struggles can be devastating, the feelings are real, not a single person will will gain the steadiness that they seek looking for water in a dry well. Um, Because the real answer to those questions has to do with your soul. A psychiatrist, an amusement or alcohol can't bring those type of questions. That's an empty cupboard to, to look there. Only Jesus Christ can provide stability for your soul. That's what Paul's going to help us with uh, Help us with this morning, and he started with some joyful instructions to his beloved church in verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 4. And, and as I told you last time, there's really one leading command with a, with a series of follow-up commands and uh, that are describing how to accomplish this. So it's so rich that it's going to take us several messages to cover, but the portion that, that we're going to Uh, cover today contains some very precious passages. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. uh, Be anxious for nothing. Uh, Verses that you've probably memorized. There are nine commands listed uh, in the entirety of verses 1 through 9. They're all given in a staccato type of of fashion. And and at the headwaters of the list in verse 1 is this command to stand firm in the Lord. And then followed by these, by these additional commands. Help these women rejoice in the Lord. Two of them in verse 4. Rejoice again. Let your reasonableness be known. Don't be anxious. Uh, let your requests be made known to God. Think on these things. Practice what you've learned. I also pointed out last time, besides this, this theme command, which, which, which uh, folds all the other ones up under it, explaining how to do that, each of these commands are rooted in God's grace it's standing firm in the Lord it's living in harmony in the Lord it's help these women for the work of the gospel rejoice in the in the Lord and there's no command of of God that's not empowered by the by the promise of God to back it up I mean grace proceeds and provides for obedience to God's uh, commands and the command that Paul begins with in verse 1 Is actually uh, an overarching theme to the book. I mean, he's repeated it throughout the letter. It's a call for for steadiness and composure in your Christian life and and in the church. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He says be resolute, stand firm, possess stability, as a church body, and then he exhorts us how to, how to fulfill that with, with the commands that, that follow. The, the words, in this way, is just one word in the Greek, hosti, which which has the idea it points to, points to the rest. Think of this as a how-to-stand-firm list, or if you obey these nine commands, it's what will bring st- spiritual stability in your life and, and, and in the church. So after a passionate plea for unity in verses 1 through 3... Paul provides a prescription for steadiness in your soul, in verses 4 through 7. I mean, unity is a bedrock for stability in a congregation. And yet, if you want steadiness in your soul, the Bible says you need four things. You need joy in the Lord, gentleness in circumstance, confidence in God, and you need to be prayerful in response to whatever comes in your life. Are you vacillating in your faith like a, like a brand-new figure skater? Are you being blown around by, by your circumstances like a wind chime in a, in a thunderstorm? Are you facing anxious moments, maybe an anxious year? Well, the Lord is going to give you a spiritual prescription this morning that if you follow it, it will bring a resolute steadiness to your life. And you don't even have to lie down to get it. You don't even have to pay money for it. All you have to do is listen to the Bible and obey what God has said. We'll call it four prescriptions for spiritual steadiness in your soul. And if you can't see this, you'll see it whenever the, the next screen comes up. There's a better contrast. Four prescriptions for spiritual steadiness in your soul. Joy in the Lord in verse four, gentleness in circumstance in verse five, confidence in God in verse six, and prayerful in response in verse seven. Let's look at the, the first one. The first prescription for spiritual steadiness is joy in the Lord. And this verse is just outlined beautifully. There's a resolution to rejoice. That points to a relationship. It's in the Lord. There's a reach of the command. It's in every circumstance. And, And then Paul repeats it. He says, again, I say, look if you would at verse four. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. As I said, there are two commands in this This one verse, both being the same word. Cairo, to to rejoice or or to be glad. It's a a present imperative, which doesn't mean anything to you other than this. Paul is calling on us as believers to make it our continual, habitual practice to rejoice. This is not a new command for for the Philippians. In fact, if if they're reading this letter, they would have already heard this very thing in in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 verse 1, Paul says, "Finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord." I say, "Okay, I got that." And then they come to chapter 4 verse 4 and Paul says it again, "Rejoice in the Lord in all uh, in everything." Again, I say, "Rejoice." You might be scratching your head. Paul you already said that back in chapter 3. But he adds some new elements here that helps us and them be successful. And we need joy. I mean, some Christians look, uh, uh, look more like they, they've drunk from a pickle jar than the fountain of life. <laughs> I mean, even when they feel good, they feel bad because they know it won't last. Um, you know somebody like that? Joy is vital in the Christian life. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's the evidence that the Spirit of God lives within you in Romans 5. There's a, there's a fountain of joy bubbling up in your heart. It's, it's commanded to you as a believer Jesus says it's one of the, the reasons that, that he reveals himself to us in John 15, 11. John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the overarching theme of this book. It, it's important. Rejoicing is like the oil in the Christian's engine. I mean, just like running your car while low on motor oil will cause abnormal wear and tear, trying to operate your Christian life with little joy will do the same thing. If you run your car uh, two quarts low on motor oil, it won't blow up immediately, but the gears will grind. And over a while, over a period of time, that engine will lose compression. It's the same thing in your Christian life. You know this because you've probably tried it. Maybe even you're even trying it this morning. You don't have the same spiritual horsepower that that you do because you've been running your Christian life without obeying this command, the joy that Paul says here, which is why he brings up the topic again in the closing instructions of the book. Joy is vital to the Christian life, but you should not confuse this command with a human emotion. I mean, by saying rejoicing, Paul is not saying cheer up or have a nice day. He's not Joel Osteening them in the closing chapter here. Rejoicing in the Lord is not a positive mental out, uh, attitude or outlook. It's a spiritual work that comes from the resurrection power of, uh, of Christ. It comes in the participation in his sufferings. It's, it's present in the loneliness of life. It knows all of his benefits are yours and even when the blessings of life are not. Rejoicing is how a true Christian expresses their faith in this life. It's why the therapist can't give it to you, can't answer the questions that that you have, because deep down, they're spiritual. They're they're rooted in what you believe about God and whether you turn your eyes toward Him rather than what's going on, on around you. Now, don't forget... When the Apostle Paul issues all of these commands, back in chapter 3, verse 1, and then twice again here in 4, 4, he's writing this from prison. Paul is writing this command um, with with preachers running around, tearing him down while he's in prison, with suffering in the midst of that. He just had one of his close fellow workers that the Philippians sent to them that that almost died. He sends him back. Now Paul is is left shorthanded, even in the ministry. You, you could hear the aching in, in, his, in his heart uh, wanting to be with the Philippians. In, in chapter 1, he, he uses five terms of endearment. I mean, Paul is not in the best of circumstances here, and yet he writes this command to rejoice. I mean, Paul, this is not like the perennial skinny person who never gains weight and has the metabolism of a roadrunner saying, diet, it's really easy. That's not what the Apostle Paul's doing here. It's not the 22-year-old youth pastor uh, that's never had a child telling you, just pray more and you won't get aggravated with your kids. I mean, this is a a mother who's raised about five kids and come out the other side with her faith. This is the idea of Paul here. He's right in the middle of it. And he's commanding us to do something that he's doing at the moment. This man, he's living exactly what he's commanding at the very moment that he's commanding it. Now, I want to pay attention to a guy like that, don't you? We often get this command uh, wrong because we think of joy like an emotion instead of an expression of our faith. Have you ever wondered how God can command you to have joy when you've got all these bad things going on? If so, you're thinking wrongly about joy. Gordon Fee said, The rejoicing Paul talks about does not refer to a feeling, but an intentional activity. I mean, Paul's not commanding good feelings or a positive mood. Uh, Like, well, you need to feel good about your life even though it's bad because God wants you to. That's not even possible. It's not even biblical. If That's what you think. You'll fail and you'll feel even worse. What Paul's commanding is an intentional activity that is an expression of what you believe, not what you feel. And that can be present in the storm of suffering. That can be accompanied with tears. It's impossible to do without the Spirit. So without Christ, your only only option is a dry secular well. But even with the Spirit, it can be difficult because of the fall and because of our flesh. So so we want to pay close attention to the key that Paul gives us here so we're able to to obey. The fob that opens the, the door to this rejoicing is your relationship to the true source of joy. Look at verse 4 again. He says rejoice in the Lord, and that's the key phrase. Christians, this is going to sound oversimplistic, but Christians find their joy in Jesus Christ. Your relationship to Jesus and his relationship to you governs your rejoicing. You can keep on rejoicing in the Lord regardless of what may come because biblical joy is rooted in Christ. This is not a uh, looking for a silver lining in things or an oh well resolution. It's not a better days coming attitude. It's faith that says God is enough. Is Jesus enough for you to be joyful? Or do you need something else? you need other things besides him? Oh, I'd like to have other things besides him. There's nothing wrong with the blessings that God brings in life. I don't like feeling bad. And some days I get up and, and, and I'm depressed. I, I, I don't have a, a bubbly attitude a, a about me. So I like the same things that you do. But is Christ enough? Is he sufficient for you to be glad today? Or is there something lacking in him? If the answer is that you need other things consistently, then then you need to take a very close look at your life and what Paul is saying here. The Lord is the object of our rejoicing and the ground of our rejoicing. I think there's actually another passage in Luke, the Gospel of Luke in in, in chapter 10, verse 20, that uses the same word twice that, that really gives you an understanding of what, what, what Paul means here. When Jesus sent out the, the 70 to, to preach the gospel and return, they, they return and give him a report. Verse 17 says, the 70 returned with joy. So they return with joy, saying, the Lord, uh, saying Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all, and over all power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And here's the verse on your screen. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There it is. You see it? Don't rejoice in this but rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in, in, in even results or, or successes. Turn your eyes away from all of those things and turn them to one place that your name is written in heaven. It's rooted in your relationship to Christ. It's to take your eye off of one thing and place it on something else, something better. That's what Paul's commanding here. That's the key to rejoicing. It can even be taking your eye off of a good thing. Look away from other things and look toward the Lord. He is your joy. No gimmicks, no special hype, no spice, No, just Jesus. It's casting your eye and intentional focus on Him. Christ is the engine of joy and the wood that burns in the fire of joy. He, he's what ignites the joy to begin with and what keeps it burning. When the waters of difficulty splash all over your heart and try to put out the flame, you turn your eyes away from the What's bringing the water, and you turn to Christ. Rejoicing, then, is to look at the one who is your Savior and render praise to God because of him. It's to turn your eyes upon Jesus in every circumstance. And that's the the reach of the the command, immediately followed by a repetition. Look at verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord. Turn your eyes away from everything, good or bad, and turn them to the Lord as an expression of your faith. And the reach of this command is always in everything, followed by a repetition. And again, I will say rejoice. I love how P.T. O'Brien translated this. The idea, he says, is keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times, regardless of what may come upon you. And then he repeats it. The word always or in everything is, is part of what Paul adds here. I mean, one says rejoice in the Lord. But here he adds always and then he and then he, he doubles it with a second command to do the same thing and without that one word without that in all uh, always or in everything you might conclude that rejoicing comes and goes like human happiness even though it's human happiness in the lord but it doesn't and i don't think i have to explain too much to you what in everything means rejoice in everything and that's pretty self-explanatory I think the question that probably will flood your mind is the same that, 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 that came into mind, which is, how can I actually do that? I see that's what it says, but how? How do I do that? In everything? In cancer and death and divorce and losses and pain and suffering? In everything? And, and while you're wondering, don't forget the positive side that can just as easily take your eyes off of Christ for a cheap counterfeit like success and ease and material things and authority and power all those things can take your eye off of christ and you begin rejoicing in them rather than in the one that this command is rooted in well remember god's methods to teach us that he's already taught us is not only in command but but in a copy of that lived out it's not just in precept but it's in pattern the pattern that you see in others and you have learned how to do this by by watching people i have learned how to obey this this passage by by watching others live it out i watched dita lewis come to church on wednesday nights two days after she had chemo treatment and struggled to stand to give thanks to god because he was so good to her I listened to Barbara Adkins in this church share her testimony decades after she was saved with the same tenderness and humility of a newborn Christian. She never got over being saved. I watched a pastor last week bury his five-year-old who was killed by the very truck he was driving and say God is good through the deepest possible pain. That's rejoicing. I watched a Christian woman this past Friday who was in pain and bone tired head out for the third time to minister to someone because Jesus was worthy of her effort. That's what it looks like. Circumstance by circumstance, you look at it and says, Jesus loved me and he died for me. He's worthy. You give God praise. You rejoice because your name is written in his book. And then you go do it. And that takes ongoing faith in the one that you serve. The repetition that follows in the word, I say it again or nevertheless. One commentator says it's like a defiant statement. And I really like the way that he put that. It's like Paul saying, no, I'm serious. Rejoice in the Lord in everything. I mean, he's got to repeat it again. Again. It, it, it's said because of what we feel when we have a command like that—that's contrary to our feelings and our circumstances. It's like saying, "God says trust Him," and yet there's there's nothing but reasons to doubt Him. Nevertheless, I will trust Him. I will rejoice. It's a doubling down on faith in the faith of adversity, a face of adversity. It's coming to the moment where you have to choose. Will you take your eyes off of what is dragging you down and put them on Christ and believe and do what God said or will you slink back and slip into unbelief and give up? Paul is saying in that second part, don't give up. I'm not giving up. You will reap what you sow if, if you don't grow weary in well-doing. So let me ask you, do you need the first command or the second command this morning? Are, are you not even looking toward the Lord to begin with? So you need the first command in God saying, put your eyes on me. I, I, I express your faith directed toward me. Don't be rattled by what's going on in your heart. Or do you need the second command? Have you, have you done that and, and now it's hard and you're tempted to give up? So, so you need the second command in God saying, don't do it. Don't give up. Keep your focus on Christ. He's worthy because a relationship with him also brings other stabilizing benefits. And that's what comes next. Second prescription for spiritual steadiness is gentleness in circumstance. In verse 5, there's a tolerant disposition that's described. This is the command, have this. And then there's a target where you're supposed to display that. Look if you would at verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That's a, just a very simple statement because this is a, these are just commands, one right after the other for emphasis. And he starts with this tolerant disposition. This is the third separate command that's related to standing firm in the Lord. And, and the word that he gives here is to be gentle or forbearing. It's one of the words that That in the original language is is much richer than than our English counterpart. We need more than one word to describe what Paul's meaning here, which is why it's translated so many different ways. I mean, the ESV says reasonableness, and the New American Standard says gentleness, and the, the King James says moderation, and the HSB says graciousness. It's a word that means gracious humility that produces a balanced outlook Toward life, that's the stabilizing factor. It's akin to contentment, but it's it's something that's not just inward; it's expressed. It, it, when it's applied um, to authorities, it, it meant a spirit of leniency and fairness, like 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 spreading out justice uh, in, in a in a in a fair way. And when you're gentle in the way that God commands you here, you're yielding, and you're kind, and you're courteous, and you're tolerant. Not insisting on every right or letter of law or custom. I mean, the idea here is a stable winsomeness that's attractive to be around. You ever been around somebody like that? they, They just seem at ease in life. I mean, nothing really rattles them. There's not super highs or super lows. I mean, and even when those things come, they're just just even-keeled. This is not uh, uh, ease as in laziness or uncaring. They're they're just content. They're stable. It's hard to explain, but if you've been around somebody like that, you know what I mean. They're a a breath of fresh air. They're unrattled. They're resolute in in a grace-filled kind of way. No mood swings, no change of outlook. They're settled. They have a stable spirit. That's what Paul's commanding for every believer here. And if you obey, then you'll have a steady life. The key to following this command is rooted in how you think about God. The incentive to be contented in whatever comes is your knowledge of the Lord. What you think about God, how you think about God, if you think about God, will determine whether you're contented and resting in your soul. I mean, both of these commands, rejoice in the Lord and this idea of being gentle, gentle both come back to, to how you're thinking about God, whether your eyes are on him and what specific attributes. I mean, th- think of it this way. What makes a difference in how you respond as a Christian to a situation and how an unbeliever does? So let's, let's say you're treated unfairly. I hope you respond differently than an unbeliever. What does an unbeliever do? They immediately look at at themselves and their rights and what's happening and and, and they get angry and they demand justice and and they want retaliation. What's the believer do? A believer immediately considers the the Lord. What's pleasing to God in this situation? How I respond. What, uh, what, What is God working? I mean, you even know the circumstances for your own sanctification. I know he's sovereign. I know he's loving. What is he doing in the midst of this? And for a believer in that moment, you look beyond the circumstance to God who's bringing it into your life. And that produces a humble, patient, steadfastness that doesn't get rattled no matter what comes. It it allows you to submit to the circumstances, whether that's injustice or maltreatment, trusting in God despite of it all. The Lord Jesus in the New Testament is is an example of this gentleness on display. He's described as meek and lowly. Look at how the Lord describes himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here you're commanded to do this. Jesus invites you to learn how to do this by looking at him. What do we need to learn from you, Lord? For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you learn that. Look at this. You'll find rest for your soul. You'll find stability, steadiness. And here it is in action in the Old Testament. This is where Jesus displays it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. This kind of tolerance is required for a pastor, an overseer, an elder. 1 Timothy 3, 3 says an overseer must, must be uh, not be violent but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be gentle and peaceable like Christ. I mean, how would you like it if, uh, how, how settling would it be if, if the, the attitude of your pastors, you know, is, is they're always wringing their hands and, and they don't really know what's, what's going to happen and, the, and they're concerned all of the, all of the time. No, they're, they're, they're rejoicing in the Lord and there's a steadiness that, that's there, no matter what comes. And James says, wisdom from above brings about that gentleness you remember the story that I told you last week about the, the older man who was eventually disciplined out of the church that I was saved in for being factious over the property dispute? Well, but long before it ever got to the, um, the business meeting, uh, there was one meeting he was in where, where the pastor was trying to explain to him um, you know, that, that this was a misunderstanding. You remember the man got upset because it was a property dispute, and he thought the pastor had sided with his son-in-law because the pastor visited this this piece of property, and and the pastor was just pleading with him that that's, that's not the case. It was actually a small group. It was in a board meeting, and I happened to be in in the meeting. And as the meeting drug on, and uh, the older man. It, Got upset and he got ready to leave. and, and as, he leaveed, uh, as he as he went to leave, he turned around and he raised his crooked finger and he pointed at the pastor with just, just vile anger on his face, and said, "You're a bold-faced liar." And he got ready to walk out. And my pastor calmly and graciously said, Wayne, I, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I mean I fear God too much to lie to you." He never raised his voice. He was never unkind toward the man at all. He, he, he didn't get rattled. And I can remember thinking, what is wrong with my pastor? I mean, you need to defend yourself. Smack this guy down. I mean, you're the pastor. What is he doing? I've been saved about two or three years. And my pastor modeled this term for me in his response. He stood firm in the Lord. He didn't back down of what the truth was he was even keeled and gentle gracious even as he stood on the truth and that's what Paul says we're to do as a witness for Christ look at verse 5 again here's the target of display let your gentle, uh, gentle spirit be known to all men here's the target there's a tolerant disposition but here's the target of display Paul is commanding the Philippians to put this graciousness on display before all men. And that's what it means, believers and unbelievers, all men. I mean, if Paul wanted to say the church, he would have said before the brethren or before one another. He says, display this not just before the church, but but at home and at work and in the grocery store and while you're driving and, and on social media. And that may involve patiently bearing ill treatment from others. John MacArthur said, isn't that exactly what the grace of God is like? You have hated me. You have been my enemies, God could say. You have shaken your fist in my face. You have blasphemed me. You have mistreated me. You misjudged me. You may have done all of that, and I still reach out to you in love. God never lowers the bar of what's right or wrong. McCarthy said, when you have that kind of attitude, you're a stable person. Spiritual stability belongs to the humbly gracious. I and mean, Christians should have a reputation of being courteous toward a hostile opposition. Now remember, there's an overarching command. What's the primary command? Stand firm in the Lord. So this doesn't mean being like a wispy wafer that, that floats off in the, in the wind. The first command is to stand firm in the Lord, but when you face opposing winds while you're standing in opposition forces, you have a resolved graciousness about yourself. You stand with your feet and you smile with gentleness in your heart. One writer said, gentleness is how other people experience a Christian's joy in the Lord. And you're able to do that because the Lord is coming to vindicate your cause. And so you're not overly worried about it. Look at number three. Look how these two things go together. The third prescription for spiritual steadiness is confidence in God. Look at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. He said, let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. The actual command is found in verse 6, and it's in the negative. Do not be anxious, or literally stop being anxious. As if the Philippians already are. But the sentence right before it gives us the grace to obey it. The reason that you can stop being anxious is because the Lord is near. Which is why I say it in the positive, have confidence in God. Confidence in the Lord is the opposite of being anxious. We're to stand and endure in faith until the Lord comes, and we do that by being joyful and gentle and confident and prayerful. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Now, without any grammatical connections, I mean, there's no conjunction here that connects it to what's before or or what's after in verse 6. Paul simply makes this statement about the nearness of the Lord. Two Greek words, the Lord is at hand. Just kind of drops that in there. While he's commanding us to do these things. And that's intentional because it applies uh, both to to verse 5 and and, and it casts light into verse 6. Let your gentleness, a gentle spirit, be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. The confidence that the Lord is coming to vindicate his cause gives us the ground for a gentle response to everyone. And the fact that the Lord is close to us personally keeps us from having reason for anxiety. The word near can mean two different things, right? Um, It can be like near in time. The election is near. It's coming, November 3rd. Or it can mean like near in space. My wife is near me right now. She's physically near me. It can mean chronological nearness or it can mean spatial nearness, and both are theologically correct. Jesus' coming is, is near in time. I mean, he could split the sky today. And so that so we don't have to retaliate or be concerned with, with outcomes. We stand firm and we will be obedient, and then you leave the rest, rest in the Lord's hands. He'll bring perfect justice when he arrives. And. The Lord is also near to us personally. And so you don't have any reason for anxiety. He lives within you. He's personally present. This is the idea that you find over and over in the the Old Testament. Here's an example in Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. That's not saying that the the day of the Lord is, is, is coming like fast because you called upon the lord it's the idea that the lord is is near you or james 4 8 draw near to God and he'll draw near to you it's not saying when you draw near to god then that's going to usher in the coming of Christ he's saying draw near to God and he'll he'll draw in close to you and paul says that truth should should give you the ability to obey this command to stop being anxious notice the, the, the command has a degree here I'll give you what verse 6 again be anxious for nothing or in nothing I And mean, this is a complete prohibition there's no wiggle room just like he says rejoice in the Lord in everything and now he says be anxious in nothing I, I like uh, what J.B. Lightfoot said: the word for anxiousness is an unreasonable anxiety, which arises from someone who is full of cares, especially about the future, and thus distracted in mind. And there's the lack of stability. You get focused on your anxieties, you're going to be you're going to be unstable. What will combat that kind of a- anxiety if you have it? Well, that's what's coming next week, three practices of prayer. But too often, Christians don't even turn to prayer. They turn to substitutes, which is why the command is given here, stop worrying. Rather than obeying God and trusting him, his nearness, we we try to replace it with our anxiety with human substitutes, and that doesn't work. MacArthur said, if you went into a Christian bookstore, you and I went into a Christian bookstore, and we pulled off the Christian books that are being written today. And I had a highlighter and you had a highlighter. And I highlighted everything that, that in those books that came out of Carl Rogers' self-love theory. And you highlighted everything in those Christian books that, that came out of the teaching of Paul. The one who highlighted Carl Rogers would run out of highlighter way before I would. And that's sad. Listen, what do you have to worry about? <laughs> The Lord lives within you. He's coming for you. And until he comes, he's near you, it it says. I mean, what are you afraid of? The worst thing that could happen to you is you die and go to heaven. That's the absolute worst thing that could happen to a believer, is you die and go to heaven. And yeah, you're going to leave somebody behind, but life's a vapor. It poof, it's gone. And you're the one that's going to be in heaven. I mean, do you think God's forgotten about you? In the midst of your anxiety? I mean, he hasn't. He knows the very steps that you take before you take them. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Are you worried about an enemy or someone who can harm you? Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. You say, you don't know the people that I'm dealing with, they're wicked. They have no thought of God, and they'll do anything. Well, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Do you think Joseph's brothers were wicked when they sold him into servitude? (laughs) They're judged for their wickedness, but they served God's purpose when they did it. What about Pharaoh? You think Pharaoh is a pretty evil guy? Pretty wicked, wasn't he? Even the devil himself serves God's sovereign designs. He'll be judged for his his evil, but God uses it for good. You have no reason at all to be anxious. God loves you, and he's working his perfect purposes all around you. And you say that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that that's possible in real life. Well, did you know the Apostle Paul has already lived out these commands before us and before the Philippians, before he ever gives these commands. He's in prison right now, but do you remember that there was another time the Apostle Paul was in prison? It wasn't in Rome. He was put in jail with a man named Silas. And do you remember where that was? It was in Philippi. And writing from prison now commands that he has already demonstrated before them. Look at Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas is in prison. Watch how he, he demonstrates rejoicing in prayer and gentleness. And he does that before all. The crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer, jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Now, how did they respond? I mean, both of these men have been unjustly beaten, thrown into jail. What was their response? They joyfully sang hymns. They weren't anxious at all. Instead, they prayed. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns of praise to God. You think that was because of their circumstances? And the prisoners were listening to them before all. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And you know what happened when the angel of the Lord freed them. They were forbearing. They had mercy. They were gentle toward this man who was evil toward them. Look at verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors had opened, he he, he drew his sword was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And and Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. He was a man who mistreated them and who was their enemy. And rather than let him be killed because of this miraculous escape, they, they cried out to him, Don't harm yourself. And as he observed their rejoicing in the Lord... And their gentleness and their prayerfulness, as they observed it, you know what he said? He said, I want what you have. That's what he said. He called for lights and rushed in, and with trembling and fear fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house, and he took them that very night washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized in all his household and he brought them into his house and set food before them and listen and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. The same joy that was the rejoicing that was in the Apostle Paul was now present with this man because he had the same Jesus and there was no fear. Listen. Listen if you have the kind of spiritual steadiness not only will the these four things not only will they bring stability in your life but it will cause other people to say i want what you have and they see the joy and the gracefulness and the lack of anxiety there's no more powerful witnessing tool out there and you say well what if i'm already anxious well Start obeying these first two commands and then come back next Sunday because we'll show you how to get rid of it in the rest of this verse. But remember now, wherever you're at and whatever you're doing, the Lord is near. He's near in coming and he's near to you personally. He's the object of your joy. He's the reason that you can put two feet down and stand in right and wrong and wrong. And yet, do that graciously and and gently. And you have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing to fear from a virus. Nothing to fear from from bad politicians. Nothing to fear at all because of the Lord. He's yours. Is he yours? If he is, then all this is yours. If he's not, then the first thing you need to do is obey another command. Repent and believe. Because if you do that, then salvation can come to your house just like this jailer. Don't you to bow your heads.